morning once again. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, if we don't know each other, uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the, well, I'm the associate pastor. I used to be one of a few associate pastors. <laughs> now I'm the associate pastor here at Mount Hope. But I have the uh, privilege this morning of opening up God's word together with you and seeing what it is that he has to say to us. And if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, uh, you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we are walking through a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And many people uh, tend to avoid the book of Ecclesiastes. It seems like a, a real uh, downer, the book of Ecclesiastes. But for me, the book of Ecclesiastes is an important book. It's one of my favorites in Scripture because I think in this book, more clearly than many other places in Scripture, we get the answer to the question that's plagued everybody who's walked the face of the earth and continues to plague us in our own lives today. And that is, where are we able to find true meaning, purpose, and significance in life? Why are we here and what are we supposed to do with the time? This book more directly than really any other place in Scripture, answers the question of where meaning can be found and where it can't be found. Now, admittedly, the author talks a lot more about where it can't be found, but in the same way, he also gives us where it can be found. And if you've been with us in the last two weeks, you know that we've gone through wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. We've gone through the pursuit of pleasure. And in both cases, the author has said to us, listen, I've gone out, And I've done everything that there is to gain wisdom and knowledge in this world. And I can tell you that at the end of the day, there's no ultimate meaning there. And then he said, I've gone out and I've experienced every kind of pleasure in this world. If you can name it, if you can come up with it, I went out and did it. I had the money, I had the time, I had the resources to do it. I tried it all. And at the end of the day, I'm telling you, there's no meaning there. And today we're going to talk about a third area, and that is the area of work and vocation. But something changes in the book of Ecclesiastes today. And that is that the author begins to talk about where we can find meaning and where meaning does exist. There's something that happens to all of us, right? At one point or another, all of us ask ourselves the same question. We could be going to school. We could be involved in a job. We could be sitting in traffic one morning. Uh, We could be at our house uh, and things just seem to be not going well at home. Life just seems to be crazy. Uh, There's a number of things that we could be doing. We could be looking for work. But at some point, all of us end up asking ourselves the same basic question. And that is we kind of throw our hands up in the air and we look at everything that we're doing, work and home and commuting and school and everything that we're doing. And we ask ourselves, what on earth am I doing here? What am I really doing here with my time? What am I accomplishing? What am I really getting done? Because it's not for a lack of of effort. I, I feel like I'm putting in a ton of time and energy into effort, into things. I'm working, I'm, I'm going to school, I'm looking for work, I'm trying as hard as I possibly can to try and do something that will bring meaning and value and significance to my life. And I'm putting in the hours and I'm putting in the effort and I'm trying as hard as I possibly can. So why does it feel like nothing's getting done? And why does it feel like I'm going nowhere? And why am I not where I want to be? And how can I possibly be putting in this much time and energy and effort and still 
feel so insignificant? And all of us ask that question from time to time. All of us get stuck in those places where that question comes to our minds and we wrestle with it and we wonder how we can be working so hard, how we can put in so much time and energy and effort and feel like we're going nowhere. I remember when I was in uh, seminary, I needed to pay for school, and so I started working nights at a shipping facility, and we would unload packages, and we would load them into other trucks that would take them where they needed to go, and, and you know, that wasn't my life's dream work, but uh, it was necessary, right? I needed to pay bills, and it was a good job, and so my hours were 3 a.m. to 9.30 a.m., and so I would go, and I would work those hours, and then I would go to class and try not to fall asleep while we were learning the intricacies of the Hebrew vowel system, which is cutting-edge stuff. It will keep you awake, and so uh, I remember the alarm would go off some nights at two in the morning and I would start driving to work and, and on a number of occasions, uh, my state trooper uncle would fake pull me over at like 2.30 in the morning. I always appreciated that. <laughs> but I would be on my way, you know, to work and, and I would get there and I found myself, I worked there for a number of years, I found myself in this position that I never really thought I would, I would be in where I was a supervisor for the shift and I was now managing um, 10 to 12 people that I used to be co-workers with. You know, we used to be in the same union and now I was outside managing them and that brings a whole bunch of fun uh, complications to the mix. And I had a boss at this place that he would make, a, he would make an awesome dictator of a country. That's, he really, that's like what his skill set is. And that's the only way he knew how to manage people was through intimidation and belittling and so I would walk in at, at, at 2.30, you know, 2.45 in the morning, and the first, it was loud, it was bright, conveyor belts, packages moving, you know, come out of the darkness into this, like, whirlwind of activity, and my boss would, he would curse, and he would yell, and he would scream, and he would get up in our faces, and he was always screaming at me to redouble my efforts, and I didn't know what that meant. I don't know what redouble your efforts means. I don't know, like, what level of effort that is, or what exponential power you take, you go to with effort, but he was, he was just screaming and yelling, and it was, it was, I would constantly go to work at three in the morning, and then I would sit in class trying not to fall asleep, and I would write my papers and do all this stuff, and it was just uh, driving to work at 2.30 in the morning, wondering to myself, what am I really doing? Like, is all this effort and work really worth it? Am I getting anywhere? Am I accomplishing what I set out to accomplish? And how in the world can I be putting so much energy and effort into these different things, into work, into, into school, into the other things I was involved in? How can I put so much energy and effort into those things and at the end of the day just feel so tired and like I've accomplished nothing? And all of us ask ourselves that question. And one of the things that, that really complicates it is we feel like, and I think it's true, that what we really want out of life is pretty simple. For most of us, we're fine if we're never the president or CEO, right? And we're fine if we're never the richest person. We're fine if we never have the nicest house or the nicest vacation home or the nicest car. Like, all that stuff's great. And if someone gave it to us, we wouldn't refuse it. But we're not, we're not asking for that. We're asking for something much more simple. It, really, at the end of the day, there's really two things that we just want out of life. We just want to be able to wake up in the morning, go and do our thing, come home at night and relax and just enjoy the whole day. 
right? If we could just feel content about where we are in life and what we have to do, we would be happy. And we're not asking to have our name on the award every year or to, or to lead the team in sales or whatever. We're not asking for that. We just want to be happy with what we do each and every day. And the second thing that we want is we just want to know that what we're doing is in some way significant. We want to, in the work that we're doing and how we're spending our day, somehow make a positive impact on the world around us. And if we never get a building named after us or we never have a statue in Boston Common, like, that's fine. We're not asking for that. But we do want to feel like if we're going to go out and put so much time and energy and effort into our work, that at the end of the day, it's going to make a difference to someone. We're going to positively affect the world around us. And that's all we want to be happy and feel like we're making some sort of positive difference. In fact, in this uh, section of verses in Ecclesiastes where he talks about work, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24, this is what he says. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And we read that verse and we say to ourselves, Yeah, that's all I want. But at the, really, in the end of the day, that's all I want. I want to be able to get up in the morning... I want to be able to go about my business and eat and drink and do my work and enjoy the whole process. That's really all I want in the end. And we read that verse and we say, yes, that's what I'm looking for. But for some reason, it's so difficult for us to find. And for, for when we think we found it, when we think we finally found the job or we found the activity or we found the thing to do that's going to finally make us feel this way, it's always short-lived. And so we have this struggle that goes on. This is what we want, to be able to find meaning and purpose and enjoyment in what we do, but it's so difficult to find. And all of us find ourselves in this place where we feel like we are working our tails off to try and find meaning and significance in what we are doing, but we find ourselves throwing up our hands and saying, what on earth are we doing and why are we not making any progress forward? When it comes to work, and it comes to our desire to find significance in work and what we do, there's two things about work, two truths about work and vocation that make it especially difficult to find meaning there. And the author brings up both of them in the verses we're looking at this morning. That there's two things the author says about just the nature of what work is that make it such a difficult thing to try to find meaning and value and purpose in, even though that's what we all desire. And the first thing he says about work that makes it so uh, difficult is the reality that all of us desire to do something significant with our lives. All of us want to fulfill some great purpose and affect positive change. But at the end of the day, we're all working for things that we can't take with us. At the end of the day, we're all working for things that we are going to have to leave behind to somebody else. And in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the author writes this, I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This 
is also vanity. And the author says, listen, the first thing that makes this whole thing so difficult is I, as I went out and I tried to find meaning and purpose in my work, the first thing that made it so difficult was I realized no matter how hard I work and no matter how much I gain and no matter how many accolades that I accumulate and no matter how much money that I'm able to earn, at the end of the day, I can't take it with me. And in fact, I'm going to have to just turn it around and hand it over to a person who's coming behind me and who knows what they'll do with it. Who knows if they'll use it correctly? And so I've spent my entire life trying to accumulate wealth and trying to get this thing done and try to be successful. And what do I have to show for it when I leave this world? I think that King Solomon uh, is the author of Ecclesiastes. I think a lot of people think that. It seems to be the most reasonable conclusion. Even though he doesn't name himself in the book, most people think time-wise and just the substance that there that King Solomon wrote this book. And so King Solomon is the son of King David. And David from David and Goliath fame, uh, he was, the, was king over Israel. And he passed on that kingship down to his son Solomon, who built the temple. And and so Solomon now is the wisest and the richest man on earth. And he has this thing that's happening as he looks back on his life. And that is, is he looking down at the heir of his fortune? He has more money and more resources than anyone on the face of the earth. And Solomon has a son who's set to receive it all, and his name is Rehoboam. And if you've read anything about Rehoboam, you can read him First Kings chapter 12 and following. You can read about Rehoboam. It's also in uh, Chronicles. It talks about Rehoboam. But if you know anything about Rehoboam, Solomon's son, or if you read it later, you take a look at it, you will know instantly that Solomon had this giant pile of wealth and knew he had it to lead to, to, to leave to Rehoboam. And Solomon knew his son. And he knew the second he turned it all over to Rehoboam, that kid was going to mess it all up. <laughs> he knew he was going out and buying the top floor at the Ritz-Carlton Jerusalem and buying the most expensive car that he could have and just taking the power and ruining it. He knew it about his son. I could see Solomon just thinking through this. Here I have spent my whole life and I have accumulated more wealth and power than anyone who lives around us on the face of the earth. And I've got to turn it over to this kid. And Lord, between you and me, you know he's going to mess it up. You know. And sure enough, Rehoboam, the kingdom is divided under Rehoboam. The whole kingdom falls apart and splits into two kingdoms. And he loses almost his entire, his father's entire inheritance throughout the course of his kingship. So Solomon's looking at it like, what was the point of this? What was the point of all this work? And the first thing that makes it so difficult to find meaning in work is we can't take any of it with us. And the second thing that is so, makes it so difficult to find meaning in our work is that work is work. Toil is toil. Labor is labor. And sometimes it's hard. Many times it's hard. This is what he writes. Look in verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the, the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie uh, Lone Survivor. I'm, I'm only going to tell you what happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie. 
But that didn't stop some people in first service from being angry with me for <laughs> spoiling the movie. So uh, maybe it's been a book for a while and it's been a movie out for a little bit, but I'm really sorry if I, if I ruin it for you. Cover your ears if you'd like. I'll give you a signal when I'm done. <laughs> Lone Survivor is a movie about four Navy SEALs um, who are sent ahead of their group to go and to scout out a village where there's an Al-Qaeda leader. And so these four Navy SEALs, uh, led by Boston owns Mark Wahlberg, go into this mountain, and they hide in this mountain. They're scouting out the town, and now they've communicated. They communicate back to their to their their fellow troops the information that needs to be communicated, and they decide that they need to get some rest. And so they hide out um, under some trees and some branches, and three of them decide to sleep, and one of them, of course, is on the lookout. And just by pure chance. An old man and, and two younger boys who are herding goats come up the side of the mountain and one of the goats sneaks under the trees and the, one of the, one of the men, boys trips over one of the Navy SEALs in the movie. I'm not sure that's exactly how it happened, but they're found out. Their hiding place is revealed. And these three people are not necessarily the enemy, but they're friends of the enemy. And the Navy SEALs know if they let them go, the first thing they're going to do is run back down the mountain and tell everyone in the village that there's four U.S. Navy SEALs on the mountain. But the last thing that the Navy SEALs want to do is kill this unarmed old man and these two boys. And so they turn, they turn and they look and they see that the summit of the mountain that they're on is not that far behind them. And so they make a decision that they are going to let this old man and these two boys go because they believe they can make it to the summit of the mountain and radio for a helicopter faster than these three can get down to the village and come back up. And so they let them go, and then it's a race to the finish. And these two boys start barreling down the mountain, and these four Navy SEALs start running up it to the summit. And as they're running up to the summit, you see them getting closer and closer, and you can see that there's no way that the boys are going to make it back to the village and that the villagers are going to be able to catch them before they reach the summit. They're way ahead. And so the Navy SEALs run to the top of the summit, and they get up over that ridge where they can set up their satellite phone and make the call, and they take a look, and they realize that it was a false summit. There's a whole nother mountain climb ahead of them. And it's a moment of hopelessness, where they realized that this summit that they thought was going to provide the safety and security and freedom they were looking for was just a false promise. And the author says that our work is a vexation. Our work is like one false summit after another, isn't it? We always think that the next promotion, the next paycheck, the next job opportunity, the next degree, the next award, that the next thing is finally going to bring us the purpose and meaning and significance that we are looking for. But it seems like every time that we get there, every time we find the job, every time we get the money, every time we get through whatever school it is that we're doing at the time, it's like a false summit. There's always more money to be made. There's always more work to be done. No matter how many times people say we did a good job, more people are asking us what we've done for them lately and it just never seems to end. It's just one false summit after another. And so the author of Ecclesiastes says, listen, you want to find meaning in your work? Here's the problem. You're working for stuff you can't take with you anyway and work, it just delivers false promises. 
But there's something inside of us that still feels like work should bring us meaning and purpose. Like if we could just get our work right, if we could just find the right position and place, that all of these feelings of insignificance and meaninglessness and purposelessness would be answered in our lives. We just get that Right, I think that's why part of why the jobs report is so uh, key in how we hear it every single week the jobs report is reported is because I know it has to do with the economy, but there's something inside of us that feels like, man, if we could just get this jobs report in the right place, everything would go back to being great. That we would all feel great about life again. We would have meaning and purpose and significance. It's why a bunch of teenagers ran up uh, Storm Beacon Hill this week uh, demanding funding for summer jobs because there's this feeling inside of us that if we could just get work right, if we get jobs correct, then kind of everything else would, would fall into place. But the author of Ecclesiastes says it's not so. But that's our default. Our default is when things just don't seem to be going right, we look for the answer in our work. And maybe the problem is, maybe our biggest problem when it comes to this is that we are expecting work to do something that it was never created to do. Maybe our biggest problem isn't that we don't have the right job or enough education or enough awards or enough sales or enough money. Maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem is we are trying to get our work to fulfill something within, inside of us that it was never created or designed or intended to produce. You know, everything that's created has a function. Every machine that's built, every system that's made has a function. I have a coffee maker in my house. I also have a CD player. Their functions are very different. Given the right ingredients, one makes coffee and one produces music. But if I was to get up this morning and walk over to my CD player and cram coffee grounds in the front of it and pour water all over it and then get upset when I didn't get coffee, you would think I was just an idiot. Because I'm expecting it to produce something that it was never designed to produce. And I think for many of us, our, our, our biggest issue here is not that we're in the wrong position or, or not that, not that we're, we're, we don't have enough degrees, and, and that may be the case, but for many of us, our biggest problem that we fall into is that we are expecting our work to produce something that it was never created to produce. I think the way that we approach our jobs has changed dramatically over the last couple of generations. I don't know if you ever read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. Uh, it was popular, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. But Tom Brokaw chronicles the stories of a number of families who uh, the dads or the husbands served in World War II, and he talks about their life during the war and after the war. And I think about my grandfather as a part of that story. I mean, he's not in the book, but he served in World War II and then came home and worked. And Lori's grandfather is a part of that story, served in Europe in World War II and came home and worked. And, and many of you have relatives who are part of that story. And the one thing that, that strikes me about my grandfather and Lori's grandfather, who I was able to know for a number of years, is that they went and they, they served and they fought in the war and then they came home and, and they got jobs. And my grandfather worked for Alfred Tire in Omaha, Nebraska for 50 years and they retreaded tires for trucks and that's what they did. And Lori's grandfather worked for John Hancock for decades to, driving a delivery vehicle and that's what they did. And I think if you got my grandfather 
uh, Oakley and Lori's grandfather, Andrew, in a room, and you sat them down and you said, talk to us about how being a delivery truck driver and, and how, how retreading tires for all those years brought you a, a sense of significance and fulfillment and inner purpose. I mean, we asked them all those, you know, Oprah questions about inner lights and, and, and being enamored with their job and meaning and purpose and empowerment. I don't think they would know what we were talking about. I think they would look at us and, and if they didn't walk out of the room, they would say, listen, uh, so here was the deal. Uh, we needed to eat and we needed a place to live. And so we got jobs and they paid us money. And that was the deal. Now, I don't think it's all bad that we expect more out of our work than, than maybe past generations have. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we expect to, that our work would bring about some sort of significant change. I think that's a good thing. It causes us to think outside of ourselves. We want to uh, better the world around us and better people around us. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But the danger that comes is that we begin to expect our work to produce something that was never designed to produce. God is the creator of work. And if you can go back, we don't have time to do it this morning, but in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, if you go back and look at there, God creates work in the Garden of Eden and gives Adam and Eve jobs to do in the garden, to tend the garden and to name the animals and to take care of the land together. And here is something that's so significant. We don't have time to get into it right now. But all of this is done before sin enters the world. You may feel like your job is a result of sin, but work, work was there before sin existed. Before that snake slithered up to Eve and convinced her to eat from the tree and Adam to eat from the tree, work was there. God created it. He put it in place. Now, God is the God who works and creates. He created this world and we are designed in his image So we are people who work and create because we are designed in the image of God. But from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were never supposed to find their ultimate source of significance and meaning from the jobs they were doing in the garden. They were designed to find their ultimate sense and meaning and purpose in the God who put them there and created the work. That their ultimate source of meaning and significance would not be from the work that they were doing day to day, but would be from God's work in and through them. Because at the end of the day, God has done the only work that matters. At the end of the day, God has done the only work that matters. The only work that matters is the restoration of this world and our souls through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the work that matters. And the work that God is doing in my heart and in your heart and in our hearts together as the body of Christ. That is the work that matters. And everything else that we are called to do, that God sends us to do throughout the work, throughout the week, is just the work beneath that work. And this is what the author says about finding meaning and purpose in our work. He says, if you want to go to the office on Monday, or you want to go drive your route on Monday, or you want to go teach that class, or you want to go into your, in, in to take a class and find meaning in that place, here's the perspective we need to have. He says in verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. And we say, yes, that's what I want. But he said, this also is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat? or have any enjoyment. 
This desire that we have to be fulfilled and find significance and meaning, the author says the only place that that can be found is in God. The only place that that can be found is in the one who created the work. And if God is at the center of our lives and what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, then the author says we'll find enjoyment and purpose and meaning, even though it's hard. He doesn't say it'll become easy. The struggles are still there. The day-to-day, the false summits, they're still there. But if our perspective is correct and God is at the center, that's where we find our significance and enjoyment and purpose. And the question we need to ask ourselves and just think through is, is God at the center of what I'm doing? Is God at the center of what I'm doing? You know, we've made a mistake in church. We've made a mistake when we have, have taught that God calls pastors and missionaries and everybody else in the church works to support them. God calls all of us. God calls all of us as his children. He created us. He gave us skills and abilities and he sends us out into places to do his work. And when we have that perspective, there's the opportunity for enjoyment. I love the Chi Alpha video. One thing they said in that video was they said that most of the students they reach are never going to go into full-time ministry. They're going to go out into the workplace as Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ to do his work in those places. And that's what we need as the church. And that's where we'll find meaning. And I think if we're going to ask ourselves if Christ is at the center of what we're doing, there's three questions we need to ask ourselves. Three important questions that only we can answer in our own hearts in order to determine if Christ is right at the middle of what we're doing. And the first one is this. Where do I find the seat of my identity? Because we will place our identity in what we think matters most in our lives. So when we were in school, we placed the seat of identity. We were students. What do you do? I'm a student. It's the most important thing I do. And as adults, most of us place the seat of our identity in what we do for work. Who are you? I'm an accountant. Who are you? I work from home. Who are you? I'm a pastor. Who are you? I'm in sales. But the biblical model is that we would first find our identity in Christ because he is who matters most. And so that we would say in our own minds, we would approach our work and we would say, I am a Christ follower who is an accountant. I'm a Christ follower who's a student. I'm a Christ follower who's a computer programmer that the ultimate seed of our identity would be found in who we are in Christ and in God above all else. Another question we need to ask ourselves is, who do I see as my employer? Who do I see as my employer? Who really gave me my position? Who really gives me that paycheck? My wife, a couple weeks ago, had to go in early to work for a a conference call, uh, which she was less than excited about. And so she got up at, uh, she was, there's no secret, uh, she got up at like really early, uh, t- t- she'll admit that, she got up really early and was down in Boston at like 6.15, right? 
really down in Boston real early for this conference call. And so she went to this conference call and, and it was her and, and, and one of her bosses and, and they were talking and they went through that conference call. And at the end of the conference call, her boss said, just hang on a second. And he said, have you ever heard of this guy? And he pulled out a book and he slid it across the table. And the book was a book by Andy Stanley, who, if you know, is a, is a preacher down in Atlanta. And the book is called How Good is Good Enough. And now Andy Stanley has written a lot of books. Uh, most, a lot of them are about leadership. But How Good is Good Enough is very evangelistic. It is the gospel. It is Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins. You can't earn it yourself. You need to believe in him. And so he slid this book across to Lori. And in that moment, who is Lori? Who's her employer? Why is she there? God has put her there for that moment. It's not by chance that she decided to join KPMG. God put her there in that moment. So she was able to have two conversations throughout the day. He came back later in the day to ask more questions. Two conversations. And the person that gave him that book is another partner in the same company in Hartford, Connecticut. And so you have two people that realize our employer is not this accounting firm. Our employer is the God who put us here and we're here for him first. So who's your employer? How do you approach your work? And the third is this, and I think this is a real important question for us to ask. When God and my work compete, who wins? When my work takes away from things that God has told me are more important, what wins? Parents, when your work and the hours you're supposed to work and the meetings you're supposed to go to comes into competition with the biblical mandate to disciple your children and make sure they follow Jesus Christ, what wins? When our work and what we're supposed to do and comes into contest, comes into competition with, with what God tells us to do and following him and building up our relationship with him, what wins? What do we sacrifice first? The work or our relationship with God? It's an important question to ask. You know, the Olympics are over today. Um, I don't know if they've ended or not. I can never keep track of what's happened and what hasn't. But they're over today. And you know, the Olympics are all about the medals. And it amazes me in the Winter Olympics because the medals are like a blink of the eye. It's, it's a split second, less than a second, a tenth of a second, a thousandth of a second determines who wins and who loses in so many different sports. Or there's a judge, and a judge's decision, a tenth of a point the other way, determines who gets the gold and who gets the silver. And these athletes, they give up their lives. They give up other career paths. They give up money. This is not like going to the NBA, right? They're working part-time jobs, and they're, and they're putting all that money into, into training for the Olympics. And this is life. And there's the pageantry, and there's the joy of representing your country. But at the end of the day, it's about the medal. The medal determines whether or not it was successful. Well, maybe you know the story of Eric Little. Eric Little was a summer Olympian, not a winter Olympian, and his life is chronicled in the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. And Eric Little was born the son of missionary parents in China. And he came, they moved back when he was in school, and, and he emerged in school as this incredible athlete. 
if you read it, what he accomplished in rugby and cricket and other things. But above everything else, he was a sprinter. And he was one of the best in the world. In fact, he was the best in the world at the 100-meter dash, which, as you know, is like the prime sport in the Summer Olympics. Fastest man in the world. And so he was training for this event, and he won the world championships, and he won every event that he was in at the 100-meter dash. The Summer Olympics in 1924 were in Paris, France. And Eric, of course, was, was selected uh, to go and to represent his country at the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And something happened, though, as he got there. Because the 100-meter dash was his race. That was the one where he was expected to win a gold medal. He was in a couple other races, but he wasn't necessarily the favorite in those races. He got the schedule for the Olympics, and he saw that one of the heats for the 100-meter dash was on a Sunday. Not the big race, just one of the heats. And Eric Little went to the folks that he had to go to, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm not racing. I'm not racing uh, in the 100-meter dash. Because I follow God, and I don't think that God wants me to do my work on Sundays. And you can imagine what people's reaction was to that. What even our reaction would be to that. I mean, we're, we're not asking you to go out and, and you know, work 10 hours on a Sunday, Eric. This 10 seconds of running. Just get in the blocks and run for 10 seconds and win the heat, just get top two in the heat. And then you can just move on and you'll be done for Sunday. And he said, listen, is what I feel, is my conviction. I follow God before I'm an Olympian. And what happened was, is he didn't run the race. And his country lost. And so one of his co-teammates, though, who was running the 400-meter dash, which was on a Tuesday, gave up his spot in the race and gave it to Eric. Because he wanted him to at least be able to run one race. And so Eric Little got into the blocks and one, an American competitor came over to Eric Little before the race and handed him a slip of paper. And on the slip of paper was written, 1 Samuel 2.30, I will honor those who honor me. Eric Little's best time in the 400 meter dash prior to the Olympics was 49.6 seconds, not even close to a medal. He broke the world record that day in Paris, France and won the gold. But to him, it wasn't about the gold medal. He didn't care. To Eric Little, it was the fact that one day he was going to stand at the gates of heaven and look God in the eye and have to answer to how he lived his life. And he knew there was no ultimate meaning and purpose and significance to be found in winning the medal. That the only ultimate purpose and significance that could be found is through Jesus Christ in God. I'm going to invite our our uh, worship team forward as we close this morning and just read you one more verse that's in Chronicles, I mean Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. This is what Paul says about this subject. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. Is that true for you this morning? Is Christ at the center of what you are doing? Because if Christ is at the center, 
The author says that we will find ultimate meaning and purpose in what we do on a day-to-day basis. That no matter what happens through the ups and the downs, through the hard times and the good times, that there will be a sense inside of us that we still have meaning and purpose and our lives matter. Not because of what's going on in our work here on this earth, but because there is a God in heaven who created the work, who loves us and who cares for us and who designed us and who we will spend an eternity with. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. So maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with your current position and maybe God's calling you somewhere else. Or maybe we just need to adjust our thinking. And maybe you're looking for a job and it's been very difficult to try and find work. Let me just encourage you and remind you that your ultimate meaning and purpose in life comes from the God who created you and who loves you and who has promised, by the way, to provide for you. But let's take a moment, and if you would, just be willing to bow your head and close your eyes. Let's spend some time. And I would encourage you as we close this worship service out to, in your own heart, spend a few moments with God and to say, God, I want you at the center of everything that I'm doing. And God, in those moments when I feel insignificant and I feel like all my work is meaningless, I pray that you would remind me that my significance doesn't come from those things anyway. It comes because I am a child of you and I am headed to spend an eternity with you. Father, would you stay right in the center so that I might experience the gift that comes from you, the ability to enjoy work and to enjoy life. And God, this morning we repent and we admit to you that there have been so many times that we have tried to find meaning and significance where it does not exist. And God, we are sorry for for all the times that we have put our work and our vocation and our job as a student and our job and what we do in the home. God, we have put that above you and we have counted that as more significant and more valuable than knowing you. And we have lost our way and we have sought for meaning that can only come from you. And God, we ask that you would forgive us for that. Lord, would you take the position in our lives right in the center? And would you remind us that no matter what happens on this earth, we are going to spend an eternity with you. And God, would we work with that end in sight? We pray it all in Jesus' mighty name.